0: The care, welfare, and education of children can be tough under the best of circumstances, but doing so during uncertain times of a pandemic is replete with challenges. On the Kansas Reflector podcast, we have two thoughtful people who are working hard for Kansas kids. Melissa Rooker is Executive Director of the Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund, and John Wilson is President of Kansas Action for Children. I'm your host, Tim Carpenter. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So Melissa and then John, let's start with what keeps you up at night.
1: I think the politicization of it all. I think the fact that we're arguing about the politics of public education, of early childhood, uh, you know, high quality early childhood programs, and, and uh, um, the funding of, of such things. I, I think the, the, the fact that the best interests of our kids is not at the forefront of those conversations is very troubling.
0: Mm -hmm. too much politics okay Yes.
1: too much politics these are our children
0: all right john what makes
2: you stare at the ceiling in the middle of the night about kids well um for me it's this idea that um, people in power lawmakers decision makers don't understand that or don't seem to understand that kids can't raise themselves, that they need supportive adult caregivers in their lives to help them out, which means we need to make sure that those adult caregivers have their basic needs met. And, and we don't seem to be doing that consistently uh, in Kansas. Okay.
0: So to help people understand where you guys are coming from and what you're trying to accomplish, I think what we should do is just have you both describe the mission of your organization's, just, a, just the high points of how you're funded, maybe a, just a, a nugget about how you measure success. John, do you want to go
2: first? Yeah, I'd be happy to go first. So Kansas Action for Children is a children's advocacy organization that's been around for a little over 40 years now. And we work to shape state and federal policies that improve health, education, and economic outcomes for children and the people who care for children, particularly those living in poverty. And we don't take money from state, federal, or local governments so that we can be an independent voice for kids in the Kansas State House and in the U.S. Capitol. Mm, interesting. Okay.
0: And and I guess you measure success by the policies that are adopted that you can wrap your arms around.
2: Yeah. And we, so we really are focused on the earliest years of a child's life, so prenatal to age eight. Uh, because that is one of the most critical periods of development in anybody's life. It's when kids are developing those social emotional skills, those executive functioning skills, all the stuff that helps them certainly step foot into a kindergarten classroom to be ready to learn and, and learn throughout their academic career. But it's also the type of stuff we know employers want to see in, in employees. It's people who can work well with each other, who have their emotions regulated, who, have, who are creative. That all starts to begin at the, in, the, in the very moment when kids are born and they start learning. Okay, Melissa, how about the children's cabinet?
1: Well, the Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund was created in 1999, and um, was created because the the Kansas participated in the Master Tobacco Settlement, and so the legislature had the foresight to set us up to receive the annual state share of that settlement in perpetuity. The Kansas Endowment for Youth was created to receive the funds, and then annually the legislature approves a, a budget transfer from the Key Fund into the Children's Initiative Fund, which is where we do our investment work. And um, the mission of the cabinet is to um, coordinate and align the system of services for, ch- for young children and their families across the various state agencies and guide investments in the Early Childhood Block Grant. Um, so we, we specifically focus on the years from really prenatal, uh, the moment a woman... Uh, determines she's pregnant till um, a child enters kindergarten is our focus age group of children, but we also provide um, funding to programs that support parents and help strengthen families. And, okay, um,
0: excellent. So, yeah. I, I- I think that that helps that helps me and would help others. So any discussion about COVID nineteen or discussion about kids at this time makes me think about childcare providers. Absolutely. How are they holding up? I presume there was a shortage before, but with COVID, maybe that's been uh, amplified.
1: It has been amplified. We we conducted a, a comprehensive needs assessment in 2019, so we have a baseline of, of, of fresh. Baseline about the system, um, and we know that COVID nineteen has created enormous pressure on the childcare system. I would note that our childcare providers were never shut down by the state; they were allowed to operate, but they were given public health guidelines to follow. And so, some, you know, a variety of reasons, some chose to close during the the state shutdown, but we were never at the peak, there was only 28% of our providers that closed their doors. And now we're, we're, that number has dropped down below 20%. So most of our providers remained open throughout, but they've struggled. They, they are really struggling to procure the necessary supplies, to absorb the additional costs, to absorb the, the loss of, um, you know, children to, to care for, that's money out of their pockets. Um, they're struggling with the health implications for themselves. If they get sick, most are uninsured um, in this workforce. So there's a variety of problems that are, are pressing on our child care providers.
0: Yeah, John, this, this seems, it, that seems very precarious. You know, our kids went to different types of places because they had working parents and from all the way from a residence to a large facility. There are problems with childcare anyway, the absent COVID there's compensation issues and access to quality and, you know, what do you make of the state of affairs, John?
2: Well, you you said it perfectly that even if without this pandemic, we were, we're facing a childcare crisis in Kansas for a variety of reasons. And I can use my own story as an example. So. Um, like you, my two kids uh, attend to child care or are in child care. Um, they started in an in-home provider, a family child care provider, and then my eldest moved to a center. And for for easy math, we'll just assume both kids that stayed in a, in a family child care provider setting. We paid $170 a week. So that adds up re- really quickly when you have two kids in child care. And so you might think um, th- then f- child care providers are getting rich but the reality is they're not. Most childcare providers in Kansas could make more money working at Target or working in a convenience store, being a dog groomer, being a, a car parker, um, than, they do making, uh, than they do providing childcare from 7.30 in the morning until 5.30 at night. And so, uh, so then you might be wondering, well, why is that the case? If, you have, if parents are paying fairly high rates, and I was actually paid, paying a reasonable rate because my childcare provider didn't charge a differential for infants. So if parents are already paying a lot, childcare providers aren't making a lot, then then what's the deal? And it has to do with the fact that this isn't a normal business where we're making cogs and widgets. Kids need focused attention. They need supportive caregiving, which means we need health and safety standards that limit the size of of childcare, of number of kids in childcare. It means that if there are infants, you have fewer infants uh, per adult. Uh, In Kansas, you can have up to three uh, kids under the age of 18 months. Per adult, so that really changes the dynamic, especially when we think about family child care providers, which is the majority of providers in the state of Kansas. Particularly as we move into rural areas of the state, they can only have ten children in, it, uh, in under their care, and that number decreases with infants. And so it, the math just doesn't work out, which is why the long-term solution, from our perspective, is increased public investments, just like we see with K twelve uh, public schools. Interesting.
0: Melissa, there must be research out there that addresses it that examines the the educational gap, the skills gap that could exist between children who go to preschool and the ones that do not. Can you
1: Yeah, absolutely? Can you educate
0: Senator. us on that point?
1: I would that would that would be my pleasure. So we hear a lot about the achievement gap, about the the um, concern over student outcomes in our K through 12 system on the the standardized measurements that are are conducted we know that that gap begins long before a child ever enters a kindergarten door and it is incumbent upon us to invest in high quality early learning programs and making sure every environment that that our children are in is the best possible quality so that we ensure that that children arrive in kindergarten ready to learn. I appreciate that it's a focus area of the Kansas Department of Education as part of the Kansas Can vision for public education in Kansas. It is the one of the five key tenets of that program is that that um, we will focus on kindergarten readiness. So the more we can do to expose young children to um, enriched environments where they are learning through appropriate developmental stages you know it's it's learning through play in most cases so we're not we're not trying to move the classroom model to a younger and younger age in some draconian way this is about enriching the environments that our kids are cared for in making sure they're safe and secure their social and emotional needs are met so that they 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 arrive in kindergarten prepared for what what they need to learn in in K through 12. And it, we know there are studies that have been done nationally. There's one that the high scope Perry study is what, probably 50 years old that they have followed children who were in a particular high quality preschool program, from that preschool age into their 50s. And we know it affects health outcomes. It affects career attainment, educational attainment, and and just their overall path through life in a number of ways. And we know from a Kansas-based program that has been engaged in a a research study um, in the Wichita area, the top, um, the Opportunity Project, has – they have done a, a program. They've had parent involvement and permission, but they've partnered with the Wichita School District. The first cohort of kids to enter this. Um, study as preschool-aged children graduated from high school in May of this year and we know we've documented the CDC has approved the study that documents savings in special education costs better attendance fewer um, behavioral problems better graduation rates I think and and better test scores so so the cohort of kids exposed to a really good quality preschool program have done better in school and save the state money. So to John's point, investing in the infrastructure that we need to provide more universally accessible programs for children prior to kindergarten is, it should be a, it's really an economic development question and it's a budget cost savings question for the state to grapple with, I think.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's hard to get politicians to pay attention to those long-term trends. If you can save money over 10 years or 20 years, whatever, it's hard to get them past the the next election cycle. John, I assume there's many uh, factors that come into play in terms of determining a child's quality of life. I think a bunch of them would be economic. You know, you have a safe home or you have quality health or nutritious uh, caring parents. Is there a pyramid of factors that are most important? Is there something that it's at the top of that list? And you both can comment on this.
2: Yeah. So I think there are two things. Uh, it's, it's not just what's on the list, but it's uh, when we provide it to, to kids. And so the earlier, the better. As Melissa mentioned earlier, if we can start, to, start providing supports to uh, pregnant moms, uh, or even moms before they become pregnant, uh, then that's, that's when we need to be doing it. But I would say there's actually not a ranked list of things that kids need. Um, it is really uh, a recipe and not a menu of what kids need. A recipe needs every single ingredient to have a good outcome. A menu, you can pick and choose what you'd like. Children, especially in the earliest years of their life, need all of those things. They need good health, adequate nutrition, responsive caregiving, security and safety that comes from stable housing and opportunities for early learning. And that early learning looks like settings like childcare, but it also looks like informal interactions with parents and caregivers and other supportive adults in the, that child's life. So really, to, to see uh, the most impact, we need all of those things. and. Um, that also means we need, uh, I think, lawmakers to have empathy for the experience of parents today in 2020 and understand that it is dramatically different than maybe uh, when they were raising children if they have children. Uh, we live in an economy now where uh, both parents in a household need to work to make ends meet. Uh, so childcare is essential for that. Um, and then, we also know that um, most, most people who get their health insurance through jobs, but when they um, don't have a job or they have a job that doesn't provide health insurance, that starts to create an impact. And from decades of uh, brain science research, we know that when houses lack of stability, when they have uh, um, uh, food insecurity, when they don't have their health needs met, it starts to create levels of stress that become toxic, and that toxic stress literally starts to rewire the brain of a developing child, and that has lifelong impacts. They, they, are, they aren't permanent necessarily, but the longer that happens, the more expensive and more uh, timely it becomes to uh, mediate those impacts.
1: Can we actually, in our um, needs assessment document, the the fact that one of, one of the two key themes of, of the needs assessment is that too many children in Kansas are growing up in families where the basic needs are not being met. And by basic needs, we actually included Maslow's hierarchy of need in our needs assessment for reference because it's, it's those basics that John just articulated. It's food, housing, proper healthcare, um, transportation needs being met. It's it's just those basic needs. And when a a parent is so consumed with concern and, and stress over what is for dinner tonight, can I feed our kids, Um, they don't have time to go do all of the enrichment activities that kids in in stable environments receive from their parents. So, you know, the simple act of sitting down to read a bedtime story can be beyond the scope of what a parent struggling uh, to make ends meet um, is actually capable of doing. So we, we spend a lot of our, our, Energy working on um, programs that help strengthen families, but we can't do it alone. We we need other in other policy arenas and other policy areas. We need help. We need we need change to happen. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm um, I'm curious if the coronavirus has affected the way you guys go about your work. It's hard to mingle with people you serve or even the policy folks. You know. So so just quickly, what What has changed about that?
1: Yeah, we've been working from home. We our cabinet meetings have been conducted on um, completely virtual format. It, it's we've we've been able to continue the work. Um, all of our partners are meeting virtually, but the work of our programs has changed dramatically. And we worry about kids and families that we're not able to reach because of the conditions. Um, we're working very hard to help families with the connectivity. Um, conundrum how do you connect to the internet if you don't have internet so um, it's been a a challenge Um, but you know we're doing doing a number of things to help meet that challenge
2: Um, good john for the cabinet yeah so our team has been working remotely since march 13th and um you know we are a policy advocacy organization, and uh, our belief is that policy changes when people talk to other people. So the the great thing is that we can talk with people uh, through Zoom or over the phone, and our people include lawmakers, but they also include community partners who have who are directly impacted by the policy decisions here in Topeka, and so we can connect with them. Uh, so our work uh, continues in a very modified way, um, but but I think there's an interesting perhaps silver line to this pandemic is, is that it's it, it could potentially be an equalizer for people. We are now all experiencing what it looks like to be physically exhausted because of the amount of things that we have to juggle. You know, um, My wife and I have been working from home and our kids have been with us since March 13th and will be with us until probably January uh, out of childcare and out of uh, a school building. So uh, I, I hope people will start to experience the, this, this feeling that it can be exhausting to try to manage everything, even when you have stable income. Uh, so I think it is an opportunity to build empathy. And I think um, it's an opportunity for us to really step back and say, like, why are we, these, these struggles that we have, of, should we go to school? Should we not go to school? Should we open up this? Should we close that? These are all kind of Um, macerations that we have to do, macinations because we have to do because of policy failures at the state or at the federal level. If we had solid policies in place that allowed for paid family and medical leave, that allowed for um, uh, kind of financial supports to keep people home and, and safe and healthy, then we would be in a different position. But
1: John, I would add, even basic agreement that the conversation around safe reopening is really focused on the wrong side of that spectrum, it, it needs to be a conversation about how to stop community spread so that our programs can safely operate. So it's the simple policy decisions about mask wearing and, and sizes of gatherings in, in indoor public spaces. If we could just get to a place where we agree to try those things in order to see if it will make a difference. Like, wouldn't that be a good thing if if we could actually make it safer for childcare and K through twelve schools to operate?
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Melissa, on that point, you before joining the cabinet, you were in the Kansas legislature. I think you served three, three terms in the in the Kansas House. You were a big part of education and children's issues at that time. So let's wave a magic wand over the state house. And what would be your big request of government on behalf of our uh, youngest Kansans?
1: Expand Medicaid. Too many families are without health insurance. Too many providers are without health insurance. Access to health care, especially now with the pandemic, it is it, it is um, it's immoral. That, that people do not have a safe, reliable way to access the health care they need to keep themselves and their children safe.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, John, you also served in the House. I, I forget how many terms you were there, but you have some pixie dust. Let's go change a policy, an idea, a principle on the welfare of children. Yeah,
2: the state has so many places that we need to be investing. So my pixie dust will be spread on my friends on uh, the tax committees to say that it's time to start thinking about increasing revenue to the state in sustainable uh, and perhaps more progressive ways. And don't enter the 2021 session with a mindset of what do we need to cut? Because we can't cut anymore. And in fact, we need to make smarter, bigger investments in other places. And we need the revenue to do that. So you're advocating for a tax increase I'm advocating for a tax increase or closing loopholes that exist uh, um, there's there is no way around it um, we have we have lived through austerity in the state of Kansas uh, and it is not it is not pretty and the, and the effects some of them are immediate but a lot of them uh, are are long term things that 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 bubble up and uh, we're seeing that in the foster care system or we're, we're seeing that in a number of areas so Lawmakers, when they step foot in the, in the state house in the 2021 session, I think need to be honest and pragmatic about what's needed. Okay. So um, I don't want to point fingers
0: here. It's easy to do, but uh, what about the long-term trends for children in Kansas? Has it been even uneven in the past decade and kind of where are we going?
1: Uh, you know, I, I would say w- Prior to COVID, I was feeling like we were on the right path. We lived through really difficult times. Um, our programs were beleaguered, and and um, really, I, I was. We were comparing numbers. The the early childhood block grant um, prior to twenty fourteen was serving close to ten thousand children. Now that be, you know, we live through a, a cycle of some cuts and, and funding has remained static once since recovering from the, the downturn. Um, we're only serving a little over 6,000 kids. So there's a big difference in our ability mm-hmm. to serve the, the children in Kansas. And uh, to John's point, the austerity... Line it is not getting us where we need to go. So we need bold action and bold thinking about how to harness the opportunity to, to redesign our – we don't have a, a system per se in early childhood. It's very fragmented. So mm-hmm. the cabinet's been engaged in a collaborative effort with DCF, KDHE, and KSDE mm-hmm. to – create better alignment and coordination of services and, and, you know, streamline and become more effective in what we do through that kind of, of intentional collaboration. But it, at heart, it will take investment in, in our early childhood sector. And I, so, you know, I'm watching and hopeful that there is federal action because there seems to be a, a, sense of the importance of of early childhood programs to our economic future you
0: know black lives matter is um, part of it is to raise the consciousness of people about issues that that maybe they're aware of but don't spend enough time thinking about has has that movement had any kind of effect on the thinking of the uh, cancer Action for children or the children's cabin
2: so uh, i would say uh, f- uh first i just want to like clearly state that black lives indeed matter. Uh, They've always mattered. They've mattered prior to the recent um, unrest that has existed, that exists in our country, and they will continue to matter. And a concern that I have is when we start to go through a recovery from this current pandemic and this current recession, uh, that we will see what we've always seen, which is um, a certain segment of the population does well and can continue uh, with financial and, yeah, uh, educational and health success, and others are being left behind. And that has to do with legacies of unfairness created by systems and structures that um, are, are discriminatory, and they're, they, they are um, they're creating gaps, and they're creating um, inequities. And so um, my concern is that, that that's going to be repeated over and over again, and we've got to do more to, to stop that. And that means, I think, uh, intentionally designing solutions that bring every single person along.
1: The cabinet has a focus on equity in in the work that we're doing. Uh, we have drafted a five-year strategic plan for early childhood in partnership with the other three state agencies, and we wrote it with an equity lens. So it, it is definitely infusing the work that we're doing, making sure that we are reaching all populations to, to make sure that all children have the best possible start in life. So we've done some very um, intentional planning and, and work to to try and be inclusive and we'll continue to emphasize that. And then at our June cabinet meeting, I was really... Um, proud to have the Children's Cabinet adopt a commitment to equity, that that statement can be found on our Children's Cabinet website. So we absolutely will keep those issues at the forefront of our thinking because not all solutions are appropriate for all communities. And so we want to be respectful and, and inclusive in our work. I would also say that that I've learned a lot about um, ADA requirements, and I, I just want to put a plug in. The Children's Cabinet website is ADA compliant, so we have done an overhaul of the resources that we provide so that the hearing and visually impaired have access to the things that we post.
2: Good. Tim, if I could add uh, one yes, more sir. thing, too, and that is. Um, I think with many of us see what's happening in the news as it relates to um, racism and uh, the struggles that our country is in the midst of, uh, and it feels overwhelming, and it feels like it's a system that can't be changed. And I would just say that what we are doing as a team and what I'm doing as an individual and as a leader on a team and as a a dad is studying things myself and taking the time to really look at um, my own biases to think about Um, how I've always done things or thought about things and realizing that um, I've got personal work to do and we can't change systems and structures uh, if we don't um, take time to think about our own lives, our own actions and the the small and big things that we might be doing. Before we have to close out, I've been
0: thinking about the CARES Act funding. That's the federal funding related to COVID. And there's been some discussion in Kansas about broadband. And how do you all think the improvement of broadband access specifically to low or moderate income people in rural or urban Kansas, how that could affect the, the lives of children?
1: That's an equity issue. That is absolutely a, a, a Question of access to the same opportunities that families that have the means and and live in the right geographic area have for their kids. So it has been on our list of of needs that, that were documented in 2019. It remains at the forefront of the work we've done in emergency planning in 2020 to deal with COVID and the shutdowns, and it continues to be an ask that we're making. So we're very supportive of the broadband initiative that was adopted. And we ourselves are, are um, working on in our own little space in a way to provide a stopgap um, solution to the technology question. Um, we have a little piece of the CARES Act funding. So we are offering a grant to early childhood home visiting programs that are state funded programs to um, allow them to equip their families with the devices um, things like tablets, things like Wi-Fi hotspots, um, it, you know, it's, it's a short-term solution, but our families, it doesn't matter if the, the fiber optic network exists, they don't have the funding in a lot of cases to, per, to have the piece of equipment they need to connect. So we are, we, we're very mindful that, that it, it is, in some cases, downright dangerous for families not to have internet access.
0: John, I wonder if at some point in the future, broadband will be just considered um, a service that all residents should have, like somebody comes by and picks up the trash, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, law enforcement, whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean it's 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 a service that uh, impacts so many areas of our lives. Certainly, um, the home visiting program, uh, programs that Melissa mentioned, but it's it's health, it's education, it's commerce, it's all of it. And I, I was I'm especially thinking about how, uh, as this pandemic has revealed, living really close to people in densely uh, packed cities might cause some people to think about where they want to live that is a little provides a little bit more breathing room. And if Kansas can be a place where we have relatively affordable housing. Uh, friendly people quality schools high quality child care and broadband then they can move here they can start a business here they can grow a business here uh, in, a, in a more affordable and uh, manageable way than maybe other areas of the country i'd like for us to keep
0: going but i i think we're going to have to leave it there i want to thank both of our guests on the kansas reflector podcast john wilson of kansas action for children and melissa rooker of the kansas children's cabinet and trust thank you both thank you great so talking much
1: Tim. thanks for having us